turn with me now to Mark, Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, where I will read the first 11 verses. Mark 14, 1 through 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. After two days, it was, pa- it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of her very costly of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who were indignant among them and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me, you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, whenever this go- wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray him to them. And when they had heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. May the Lord bless this reading to our good understanding. We see here in this text an amazing contrast of two examples. The example of the woman and her love, the example of Judas and his contempt. You suppose that the way Mark was directed to inscripturate this is by mistake? That we have these two graphic contrasting examples set side by side. Also, we have the chief priests and the rulers who are plotting, who are happy to have Judas come to them. We see them in the first couple sentences of this passage. We see this great contrast between the love of Christ and the hate of Christ. It truly is amazing. Um, How can we as we think of ourselves and our children and our children's children, how can we create a loving environment for our children? And would would that environment suffice? And when we see um, Judas here, we see him having been in the very company of Jesus. In terms of environment, in terms of environment, it could not be better for Judas. And yet what does Judas do with the gifts that God has given to him. He squanders them. He wastes them. He holds them in contempt. He is in the very fellowship of the Lord Jesus Christ, this wonderful God, this wonderful Lord, this wonderful man. He is in the very company of Christ. And yet, 
despite all of these environmental factors, it works up a hatred or a contempt in Judah's heart. Does this not exhort us, brothers and sisters, that we must have the Holy Spirit in our lives to improve whatever providences, whatever environment God gives unto us? God can take an environment of oppression and um, judgment, trial, tragedy. God can take these environments and uh, make them gilded rooms of plenty and bounty. to make our lives flower with his grace. Just the opposite of what happens uh, with Judas. <clears throat> um, and yet, um, the opposite can occur as it happens with Judas. Um, how we must uh, be more sober in our uh, awareness of what really is important and what is not uh, in this life of ours. Now, we have the, <clears throat> the good example here of this woman <clears throat> in, the, in the shadow <clears throat> of Israel's leadership working against the kingdom of God and Judas working against the kingdom of God, both opposed to Jesus Christ I don't know why the leaders of the church don't more often consider how few times or how infrequently the church's leadership is held up with great esteem. I, I, don't, I just can't grasp that. Over the years, I've been ordained for almost 50 years now. And uh, I don't think in any presbytery that I've ever been in, and I've been in all the most conservative presbyteries in the country, and yet I would say in none of them is there a proper fear of the evil that so quickly and easily seduces us. I've often stood as hearing Presbytery debates and discussions and wondered to myself, do my brothers here not remember how often the church has been in decline, how the evolution of the church, how the improvement of the church is far from an automatic thing. In fact, it's just almost the opposite, that the automatic tendency of the church is corruption and decay and devolution. And that's what we find going on here in Jesus' day. We might wish that Jesus would make an appearance in our world today, that the world might be affected for good, but except the Holy Spirit accompanies him, except the Holy Spirit is there to take the magnificence of Christ and to lighten it up and to shower his blessings upon it, even the magnificence of Christ will not change these hearts that are so hard that, it will, that live and beat within our breasts. We must have the Holy Spirit. We must have God's grace or else we perish even in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's really an amazing thing. So we looked at we look at we looked at Jesus or Judas momentarily to see how he squandered the, the beauty, the teachings, the lessons, the love and the affection. Think of how he was lavished with this stuff in his day, and yet he squandered it all. And then we come to this woman who makes an appearance. 
at the end of the text, it says that uh, that wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, that this woman, what, what this woman has done, will be told as a memorial to her. And yet, in God's ironic sense, we don't even know this woman's name. Uh, Mark leaves her anonymous, but that all the more um, focuses on and highlights the deed that she did. For what she, what we see with this woman is that this woman had a love of God. A love of God. Now, how wonderful is that? Uh, it, this is easily said, this idea of the, the love of God or love. But we, we see just in human terms how easily this is perverted. We're exhorted in this world to love, to be lovers. And yet, when, as I prayed this morning, when we love Satan, is that really a love? Is that really something to be celebrated? See, love in and of itself is nothing and if it, unless it is cemented to the Lord and the love of God. But this woman did have that, and that's why Jesus celebrates her. It says <clears throat> that while he sat at table, a woman came having an alabaster flask, which is a precious flask, of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. This is, a, um, this is an extravagant gesture. Would, would any one of us come and do this in our right minds? It's so extravagant. You see, it either has to it either has to have the warrant of the circumstances of this case, or it's kind of crazy. But it does. It does have the warrant of the circumstances because to whom does she do this? The Lamb of God. The Lamb of God who was about to be slain. The, the Lamb of God who was, who was about to work up and uh, supply both forgiveness and righteousness for a whole host of people, all of those who would call upon the name of the Lord. She breaks her vial upon this man. She's focused upon the right person. The whole world at this time was confused about Christ. But somewhere in the annals and the outer reaches, the, the, the deep reaches of her heart and her soul, somewhere... She had come to understand sin. Not just sin, generally speaking, but sin in terms of her own life. She'd come to understand something of her own need. She'd come to understand something of her own wickedness. Her, her own distaste for the living God. Her own tendency to wander and to choose everything that was other than the way of godliness, as God would hold up and... and uh, signal for her and for others like ourselves. She learned something about herself. She learned about her iniquity. <clears throat> she learned about the poison of her spirit. And simultaneously with this, she learned about the beauty of Christ. She knew this woman, this woman who came anonymously out of nowhere, this woman knew more than the scribes and the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees of of Jesus' day. Where did she learn these things? Where did they come from? Where, from whence did they arise? Except the school of the Holy Spirit. 
Here is a woman who comes from nowhere, but she is a step above, a story above the religious leaders of her day. This woman was a woman of some grandeur who understood the magnificence of Christ. And so she came into the room, and even though the people in the room did not understand this, because they thought this was too extravagant, they had, they had worldly minds. They were more concerned about the poor of this world than they were about this, the Christ of this world, the Christ who had come. And so while they're covering, remembering their superficial criticisms of this woman, uh, she disregards it and she takes this ointment and she spreads it upon our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it says here that they, that they were upset because this was worth more than 300 denarii. A denarii, or denarius, depending on how you make it plural, uh, a denarii was worth um, <clears throat> the whole, whole, a whole day's wages of a, of a person who could uh, make a good sum. So 300 denarii represents a whole year's salary, in essence. Another way of, uh, uh, another way of reckoning the value of denarii in agricultural terms is that a denarii is worth, I think it is, uh, 10, 10 donkeys. Now that's Each donkey, you know, is worth a lot of money. And uh, so... Uh, Another, this was a gold coin, the gold denarius. A gold denarius was, was worth 25 silver denarii. Uh, so um, this, this is a great value. And there are those who suppose they pretend to have a great love of God, when, and so they, they talk about the poor, when in reality... They would use the poor as an excuse to detract or take away the glory of God. Beware, brothers and sisters, of this great political contrivance that is often used in this world today. We say we love the poor, but really we're just using the poor as an argument against God. You can always do this. Why are there poor? Is God not sovereign? Is God not in control? Then how could he create a world in which there were poor like this? Disdain the Genesis story. Disdain our father and mother's fall from grace and Adam and Eve. Pretend all this, lay all of this on God the Father's doorstep for the way he created the world, the freedom that he gave them at the beginning and all of these kinds of things. But it will not work. And this poor woman saw through, she saw through all of the, the, all of the rhetoric, all of the empty talk that we hear that fills up our news stations and fills up our culture. She cut right through that. She had a capacity to see through to what was really right and really wrong. And when you're talking about real goodness and that sort of thing, you can't get any more good than God and his ways and the Bible, whatever the Bible says. <clears throat> I saw on Facebook recently a, a debate over uh, some topic, and I forget what it was. Is this really right or is this really wrong? 
and people were waxing boldly on both sides of the argument, and then some poor uh, anonymous person simply quoted the scripture where the scripture gave an example of what they were talking about, and it showed from the scripture that this was okay, that this was good. See, God's word so often cut through all of our logic and all of our arguments. And in this case, the room was filled with those things, and Jesus cut through them by commending the woman, didn't he? Commending her at the very point at which she was being um, uh, contradicted and criticized. Let her alone, he says, in the imperative. Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? Jesus is saying that you don't even you don't you haven't even begun to have proper theological perspective. She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and wherever you wish, whenever you wish, you may do them good, but me you do not always have. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. And uh, and uh, he brings in he brings in the clincher. These people have no idea that he's about to die for Israel. But she, uh, and she probably didn't either in totality, but by her gesture of great extravagance, she did. Assuredly, I say to you, Jesus said, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. What was the great memorial for her? <clears throat> Her love of God. That simple thing, that love of God. You know the great commandment, don't you? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of thy heart and all of thy soul and all of thy mind. I remember learning that early on in my Christian life. The great commandment, love the love of God. And then one day in college, I was taking an ethics class, the, uh, the philosophy of ethics, and I found out that there were three great principles by which ethics turn. The, the, the motive, what our motive is. In other words, there's three great ways to know whether something is right or wrong, whether something is good or evil. The, the, the motive of our heart, the, <clears throat> the end to which the thing works, and then thirdly, any um, any ethical um, any any set of ethical laws that are that are good that God gives us. And I learned that regarding this idea of motive, that in terms of Christian ethics, that the love of God is the core. Simple principle. Now you can you can you can organize, and if you ever study ethics and philosophy, there are there are there are th those three ideas are the organizing principles for, for three different ways of determining ethics for three different ethical systems. Most unbelievers, as they do ethics, they they choose one of the three, and then they they develop a whole ethical system based upon that pragmatism. John Stuart Mill, John Dewey, people like that. Pragmatism, the idea that we determine good by what works the best. Uh, um, pragmatism <clears throat> works on the second principle. Motive, what did I say? Motive, then how things work out, and then an ethical code. So how things work out, and it's true. 
uh, how how things work out is very very important. Do things do things work out so that they uh, are a blessing to the kingdom of God? Uh, Jesus says, "Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all of these these things will be added unto you." The problem with humanistic ethics or humanistic pragmatism is that it never it never gives the thing enough time to work out. In other words, uh, according to God's ethics, if we seek the kingdom of God, it will always work out. If we seek the kingdom of God and His and His goodness, everything will work out. But when you uh, when you say when you you have, when you like the like the existentialists used to used to teach that that uh, love just human love was all that was needed, and so if you did, if you did things according to human love, that was all that you needed to do. So if you were in a field like Woodstock and you were smoking a joint and you had feelings of love for the girl across the way from you and you decided to lay down with her and make love, well, that was all good. That was the flower generation. Except that it wasn't good. It might be. It might. It might have seemed good to you in the moment, but but how does it work out, really? By the end of time, or by the end of time, you have illegitimate children. You have broken families and broken relationships. The very antithesis of goodness and the way it works out. So what I learned was that in the Bible, all three of these principles are worked together. Because Moses gives us the system, Moses gives us the law, Jesus gives us the the uh, the end that we ought to work for, namely the kingdom of God, and then he also teaches us about the motive that ought to dom- dominate our hearts, the love of God and the love of our fellow brothers and sisters. There's a very simple ethics course given to you in the, for- in the form of a sermon. But you see this woman, she had mastered the first way it's a simple way, but it's fraught with all kinds of problems if you don't work it out fully. Because your motive, the motive of love, needs to be congruent with uh, biblical uh, pragmatism, if you will, and it needs to be congruent with biblical code, namely the, the law of Moses. And that's why in Romans, uh, uh, Romans uh, 10, uh, Jesus says, "What what is demanded of you? Nothing more than loving your your brother, your Christian brother." And then he, but then he goes on in a verse later and says, "What does this mean? It means thou shalt not thou thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill." So he he bounces back and forth between the the motive of love and the code of Moses that we have in the Bible. This woman has mastered the idea. Of love, and that's and for that Jesus celebrates her. Now she doesn't just she doesn't have a vague love, or an unprincipled love, or an unfocused love, does she? No, her love is focused on the Son of God, this magnificent Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the focus of our love, and that is in short supply in this dark world. It is in this day and it was in that day then. Jesus was in a room that was during the time of Passover when these things should, the the spiritual values, the spiritual concerns of their lives should have been uppermost in their minds. They should have been especially spiritually sensitive to what was going on. 
And yet here they are plotting against the lamb who was to be slain, betraying him in the form of the schemes and the plots of Judas Iscariot. How confused can we be, brothers and sisters? How lost can we be? How how misled can we be? How blind can we be? How contemptible can we be? How lost can we be? But this woman, in comparison to that, had the eyes to see and the ears to hear. And so her attention was focused fully on our Lord Jesus Christ. And she brought in these this spikenard, the oil of spikenard, that was worth thousands of dollars. Thousands of dollars. And she anointed the Son of God. Oh, how the angels must have rejoiced as they saw Christ receiving his due glory in contradiction and in contrast to all of those, all the rest of the people of the world at that time. Um, it is no... It is no wonder that uh, this woman is celebrated. There are a number of women in Scripture that are celebrated. Uh, women can be devious, we know. Women are part of the fallen human race, too. But in Christ's work, redemptive work, women can also be redeemed. And they are held up to great esteem. The first ones to realize and understand the resurrection from the dead these women going to the tomb when the men were too afraid and timid. Uh, I talked to uh, a woman, an older woman now in her uh, uh, 80s, <clears throat> who lost her husband just a few years ago. She's a member of the first church that we had in western Pennsylvania. And uh, just to hear her voice, to know what she was one of those people that um, started the first church that we had, that we, were, we had gone to United Presbyterian Church USA, had a great, huge dispute over the ordination of women. Um, the denomination decided to force people like me out of the church. And so... Uh, I had this country church. I didn't think anybody would understand very much about the theology of this stuff. And, and so I, I was talking with the PCA at the time, with a, with a whole group of other, others of us, and we were, I was going to go to start a church in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. I was in western Pennsylvania at this point, uh, about 50 miles north of Pittsburgh. This woman was one of, the, one of those little ones of Christ who... Uh, came to my door, actually it was her husband who came to my door, Wilbur, and, um, and asked what, what, they, what they could do. Uh, because they had esteemed the word of God as they'd heard it from my lips the two years that I'd been there. I, I just didn't think that anybody would really get it in two years, this theological controversy. So I was going to go. And out of that then, I... I uh, it was determined that I should stay there with this group of people and start a church there. There are only, from what I'm told, there are only three people left in the church now 
that that are that were there when I came, that were younger when I came, because I'm getting old and older people have gotten even older and they've gone to be with the Lord. Some dear, dear people. But I think of this woman. Uh, she's in her 80s now, and uh, I can't remember how far along in her 80s, but I don't. She didn't just turn 80. <laughs> and uh, she, she, we talked about her being alone. And she said, I, you know, I praise God for my children, but she said, you know, when you get this age, it's, it's hard not to be alone. Um, she said, um, she had a bad car accident a couple years ago. And since that time, she hasn't been driving. She's sharp as a tack mentally, but she just is, has been circumscribed with her ability to move about and to, and to, be social. She she lives. She still lives on the family farm, so she doesn't have neighbors right next door, and um, she's alone. She was regaling me with a story of her husband that meant a lot to her. Uh, she said that Wilbur was a man of prayer. He used to pray, and um, Toward the end of his life, one day he was leading in a, a larger prayer for the family for their before they ate, and his daughter had the insight to snap her phone on and record the, her father's prayer during dinner. Well, it wasn't too many months later after that that Wilbur went to be with the Lord. And Jean was regaling me with a story of how at his funeral service they played the recording of Wilbur's prayer. It's so sweet. She said she believes that Wimp, or his nickname was Wimp for Wilbur. She said Wimp was the, probably the only man that has, has ever prayed at his own funeral. <laughs> but it was a sweet prayer because he loved Christ and he loved. And so I, I think of this woman in her loneliness, in her being alone. She's got two kitties that like to jump up and sit on her sit on her lap, but she's she's wanting. Uh, human fellowship, but she has divine fellowship. She has the fellowship of the Lord, and for that she really uh, rejoices. Some of these women <clears throat> that uh, in, of, of my life, uh, uh, I was reading Facebook just recently, and uh, another woman that I know through Facebook said that she was feeling sick. She's, she's um, perpetually sick. I don't think, I don't know when the last time she was where she got to church. But she quoted this verse. Uh, she said, I'm feeling sick about, uh, she's feeling sick and she's uh, especially sick, she says. And she said, so would you pray, would you pray this prayer with me? And she wrote out, now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ, through, through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me. 
And uh, I, I knew right away that that was a verse from the Bible, but I, I had no idea where it was from. And somebody else quickly said, where is this from? And somebody else said, Romans 15, 30. And I turned there, and sure enough, now I beg you, this was the Apostle Paul, now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me. So the great apostle was asking for prayer, that he might be strengthened in his uh, trek through this world. Uh, and I thought of this woman, I thought of, the, I thought of her love for God that is very evident in the things that she writes, and uh, my heart was touched. These, these women, like this woman with the alabaster jar, these women who have a love for God, it's very, very touching, very, very touching. I, uh, I think of my wife, who is often in a very sickly way these days, and, um, and her love for God. The love for God is very touching because it's so pure. It's so contrary to this world and the things of the world. And it's so agreeable with the Lord. And it's so, it's so proper because the object of our love is worthy of that love. The most worthy of the, most worthy of the whole world. And uh, the Lord Jesus, through his work and the Holy Spirit, through his work, works these things up in us in our lives. And uh, they got the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, um, verse 9, says that this was a memorial that should be lifted up and preached wherever the gospel is lifted up today. So let us hold this dear to our hearts today. Let us remember this woman and her extravagant gesture toward the Lord Jesus Christ, realizing that because it was Christ, it was not extravagant at all. It was entirely 100% proper. Let us then have that love for God ourselves. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we pray that thou wouldst singe our hearts with remorse that we don't love thee more and, uh, and work up in us a greater love of thee, not according to our own definitions, as if we might define love, but according to thy definitions, O Lord. Help us to love thee more on thy day, on thy Sabbath day. Help us to love thee more according to thy word, thine own holy word, thy revelation that is given unto us. Help us to love thee more, O Lord, through the redemptive work which our Lord has done for us, that we might come alive and that we might be alive and that we might love God more with all of our hearts and our souls and our minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.